Thank you for the beautiful song. Indeed, what a friend we have in Jesus who takes us through this life. Um, and if we're willing, brings us to the other side. And so we can live with him forever. Uh, the, the Bible uses stories so often. Um, not just theology, but real stories. And so I'm going to have the privilege today of telling you the story of my life and how I've come to the Lord. Um, we all have roots, and we all have different understandings. And it's only as we understand the background of somebody that we really can get to the understanding. So, for example, if you say Jesus to somebody um, that is Protestant, you have the concept that God has come down to us and become a man. If you talk to a, a Catholic, uh, Jesus has never come quite down to the level of, of a person. If you talk to somebody from Islam and you say Jesus, uh, they would say Isa, and they know who he is, but he's very different from the Jesus that we see in the Bible. Uh, in, in Islam, in Jesus actually never died for sins. He actually never even died on the cross. God didn't let that happen. Anyway, my, my story starts in, in Emstetten in Germany. And I was uh, born in 1948. If you do the calculation, that makes 76 this year. Uh, so my, my parents uh, are from Eastern Europe, from the country that used to be Yugoslavia. It's all broken apart in pieces now. And if you, could, if you could turn on that first map, do I use this clicker to get it on? Or you want to, yeah, you want to put the, the first slide up? Okay, so here we see Europe. And I got this fancy pointer here. Uh, which is not working too well. Anyway, all right, so here's the Mediterranean, right? See that big Mediterranean ocean? If you look up to the boot of Italy and you go, see that Adriatic is right on the right side of Italy and you will see, you will, not, not working. Anyway, you, you'll see, you'll see uh, what used to be Yugoslavia there. And my dad, um, my dad is from Montenegro, a tiny little place. And if you go there, you'll see rocks, rocks, and more rocks. It's an it's a orthodox uh, part of the country. My mom was from Croatia, which is on the Adriatic Ocean, very close to Italy. In fact, so close that everybody in this little place spoke uh, Serbo-Croatian and Italian. Um, and my mom was from the Catholic part. Uh, okay. Can you, uh, let's see, I clicked to the next slide here, and I, I apologize for not being very good at this. Okay, all right. Background more to Eastern Europe is, uh, again, you see the Mediterranean Ocean there? And in, in around Africa, these are all the areas that Islam took over very quickly after its inception in like 600, a little bit after 600. And so by the time um, 
700, uh, Islam was in, in much of the Mediterranean basin. But, okay, but of importance to my story is the fact that these areas were actually taken over by the Ottoman Empire, another Islamic empire. And you'll see in, in uh, that the, the, you see the Adriatic again? Um, so the parts not along the coast were taken over by Islam. In fact, they even, you see where Vienna is up there? Uh, Islam came to the gates of Vienna and actually God used the Muslims to keep the Pope from attacking Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation because they would, they would go and fight against, against uh, Muslims. Okay. In, in about 300, 330 AD, there was an emperor named Constantine, and he, he was a Roman emperor, and he moved his capital from Rome to Constantinople, which I think you can see, no, it's not, if you can see it there, it's, it's right where the Black Sea is, there's a little opening there, and so it was easy it was easy to protect, so he moved the capital there, and that actually split the, the, the growing church into two, into the Catholic part and into the Eastern Orthodox part. So Yugoslavia, e Eastern Europe, uh, where my parents are from, this was the meeting of Catholicism, Orthodoxy, the, the Byzantine Empire, and Islam. So you can imagine the kind of turmoil that was created there. And, and there were built up animosities uh, often. Um, and you all know about the Crusades where the Pope and, and the Western European countries, they weren't countries then, but they, they decided that they had to uh, free uh, Jerusalem, which had been taken over by, by Islam. So they went to free uh, on a number of occasions. There were a series of, of Crusades, but, but to show you the kind of animosity that's between the Catholics and the Orthodox, in uh, 1204, um, there was a, a crusade that was, that was funded by Vienna. Vienna was a powerful city-state at that time. They had a lot of money. And so they said, yeah, we're going to fund you to go and, and take, uh, take Jerusalem back from the Muslims, but on the way, we want you to take a city that's owned by Hungary, that's on the Adriatic, and, uh, which they did. And, and, but, but it was a, a Christian town. And, um, and we're going to fund you to go to, to Jerusalem. But on the way, there was uh, a man named Alexius, who was a member of the ruling class there in, in Constantinople, also known as Byzantium. Um, who said, if you will put me on the throne in, in, in Byzantium, in Constantinople, I will give you money. So they took him over there to Constantinople, and when they put him on the throne, um, he was killed pretty quickly. And the next ruler there told the crusaders to leave. Instead, they sacked Constantinople. So here is a, one Christian group fighting with another Christian group. And I am going to 
Okay. These animosities grew and grew and grew over the centuries. These are very dangerous looking people, aren't they? They were on their way to a concentration camp that was in Croatia during World War II. In World War II, uh, Croatia, because it was the, the Catholic part of the country, broke away from, from Yugoslavia, formed its own, its own little country, and they had a huge concentration camp there. And so they, they hauled people that were living in Croatia that happened to be Orthodox, and they, they also rounded up whatever Jews were there in that area, and Rome. And they probably, in this concentration camp, killed about 100,000 people. This, this guy is the, he was in, in charge in, in part of the concentration camp. Um, he was a Franciscan friar. I didn't hear anybody say, oh, he's a Franciscan friar. Uh, it, there is, is, supposedly he was dismissed from the order. There's never any real proof of that. But he was the leading figure in Yasinovitz. After, after the war, he was captured, and uh, he agreed that he had killed about 100 prisoners personally, and that he was attended, I mean, mass executions. Um, okay. And this is just uh, some more information about him. Okay. So after, after World War II, um, Yugoslavia fell under the communist banner. And my parents, my, my mom and my dad, uh, decided that they, they were not married. My mom was 18 years old when she left Yugoslavia. My dad was uh, 32, something like that. Yeah, he was 32. So, and there were lots of young people after World War II that didn't want to stay in communist countries. And so they started moving west and they were taken, these young people, and put into displaced persons camps in Italy and in Germany. And so my parents actually met on the way to Italy. Um, as I said, my mom was 18 years old, my dad was 32, my, my, uh, they had, and they have very different histories because my mom was Catholic and my dad Orthodox, but somehow they got over their, <laughs> their issues and, and got married. Um, okay, so dad was a career military man. He was born in 1910. He was born in a very poor area in Montenegro. He lost his dad when he was about 10 years old because of a political issue, again. And, but, and then my dad, uh, I think when he was 12 or something like that, he went to a military academy. And they, because he's nice looking, picture doesn't do him justice, they put him in the king's guard. You know, they always have the nicest looking people guarding the king, right? Um, and my, my mom uh, was 18 years old when she left. Her dad was the harbor master on the, on the, in this island of Kirk, and, and I think in Rijeka also. But he was the harbor master, so the ships would come in and he would make sure that they, that they got to the right place. Um, okay. But my, 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 mom, my mom's dad was loyal to the monarchy, which was established after World War I. So they, they actually had a, a lot in common. So uh, 
again, all these young people were, were taken into camps. First, my parents were in a displaced persons camp in, in Italy. My oldest sister was born there. There she is on the right. And then they moved us to Germany, and I was born in Germany. And I think I was born in Amstetten, maybe Vorhorst. I don't, I'm not really sure, but somewhere, somewhere in there. And then we moved to, we were privileged to come to the United States. We moved to Chicago. We worked, we went to a very working class neighborhood. Uh, I was two years old, my sister was four when we moved to Chicago. My dad worked in a factory and my mom started working in a factory but she worked her way up finally to becoming an officer at Home Federal Savings in downtown Chicago. Uh, and then they, they moved to, when my mom retired um, and my dad retired, they moved to California. My mom sold real estate. My dad never learned the language. And so I was forced to learn Serbian. And uh, I actually got pretty good at translating newspapers for him. We, we attended the Orthodox Church, which is a very nationalistic church. A dad would go in, and it, it's very ritualistic. Um, you know, you just know what's going to happen during the service. The, the, the priest has a censer, and he waves this good-smelling stuff to the people, and they answer back in a very rote way. So it's a very nationalistic church, very ritualistic. And Dad would take us there. We would go inside. Uh, and, and then very shortly, Dad would go outside, and he would smoke and talk politics with the other men. Okay, There was no Sunday school. And it was very much like Catholic in theology, but a little bit different. We didn't have statues. We just had icons. And there wasn't much veneration of, of Mary. Um, as we were growing up in Chicago, in this working class neighborhood, our next door neighbor, our next door neighbors, it was the parish of the Swedish Covenant Church. And that's very Lutheran. Um, and so the, the daughter of the pastor invited my sister and me to come to church with her, which we did. My, my parents gladly let us come to church. And there, uh, we went to vacation Bible school. We went to Wednesday prayer meetings. And there were also girls clubs in the neighborhood that were in, in the various churches. But, you know, awareness of spiritual things comes kind of slowly if you're not taught systematically. And it takes a while to put it all together. I... So this is a picture of Jesus in the Swedish Covenant Church. I remember it well. And I did not recognize that this person in the Orthodox Church was the same person. <laughs> they look very different. Um, I remember making a, a childish commitment, which is sincere, to Jesus in the Swedish Covenant Church. But by the time I was in high school, that was all just kind of a vague memory, and I didn't believe much. In fact, by the time I was in high school, I knew just about everything. I knew that evolution was true, and I knew that God didn't exist. And I became more aware of history, and I was, as I became more aware, I was actually disgusted by religion. Religion had no semblance of truth, because the followers of God were so messed up. They were killing and hating each other. 
And I believe that if God is love, as Christian said he was, back in the Swedish Covenant Church, there was no way he would tolerate the injustice and evil in this world. But since there was no way of finding out, I just went on with my life. And theologians and philosophers, they were just proposing their own ideas, kind of worthless exercise, I thought. So I was not concerned with that at all. I, that's not the avenue that I took to find out what truth was. But I remember laying in bed at the end of the day, busy day, and thinking about annihilation. A time when I would not exist anymore. But, you know, no one knew anything anyway, and I knew I was going to die, so I just kind of put it out of my head. In 1965, I attended the University of Illinois. I was studying art history. And uh, I, in about that time, in 65, I met my late husband, Peter, who had just graduated from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana campus. He had started school late uh, because he and his father had escaped from Yugoslavia. His dad was an architect and a builder before World War II. He had actually built up quite a bit of money uh, because he would not only design a building, he would actually build it. And, uh, and from what I heard about him, he wasn't always on the level <laughs> all the time. Um, but uh, he was, he was well-to-do. He knew that the war was coming. And so he started amassing wealth in things, in gold and silver, jewelry, and all that kind of stuff. And the last building that he built, an apartment building, he had a little space behind the, behind the bathtub, a little space that was just really tight, as he, um, where he hid a lot of stuff. So when communism took over, he actually refused to work for the communist government. Now, his brother was one of the founders of communism in Yugoslavia. So you can imagine some of the tensions in the family, all right? Peter was born in 1938. He survived the bombing of April 6, 1941, when Germany just bombed Belgrade to pieces. Uh, they had a little country place that his dad had prepared, so they spent part of the time there. Um, but he also experienced some of the bombing by the Allies in uh, April 16th, 1944, to September 6th, 1944. So the Allies were, were bombing. After communism took over, you know, his parents stayed there. They were actually given an apartment in their apartment building. They were given an apartment. Uh, that was quite generous of the government, right? Um, but one thing that the communists did do that was very helpful was they gave free education to anybody. You wanted to play the piano? There it is. Go start, you know, get free piano lessons. If you wanted to join a choir, same thing. If you wanted to participate in sports, you wanted to learn how to you know, shoot arrows or whatever, it was all free. So my husband and his best friend started swimming. And the best friend uh, actually did really well in, in uh, the butterfly, but Peter loved water polo. And if any of you know water polo, 
a really aggressive sport. <laughs> yes, water polo. Because you see what's on top of the water, but you don't see what's underneath the water. <laughs> like, has anybody here played water polo? You did? Okay. Oh, okay. All right. And, and my husband wasn't a big guy. He was, uh, you know, a little bit taller than me. Um, so he was involved in this very kind of nasty sport. And he actually made the, the national team, which ended up going to the Olympics. He did not go um, because, but a, a, as a member of the, of the water polo team, the, the coaches were all members of the Communist Party. And so he and his dad concocted a plot by which they would be allowed to leave Yugoslavia. At that time, people were being killed on the border. You couldn't just leave. Some of his friends tried to go across the Alps and to go into Western Europe, but you know. Anyway, my husband and his father concocted a plan. So Peter was studying um, uh, architecture. Finally, he got into the school. Usually, because his father was not part of the, of the Communist Party, it's kind of hard to get a slot in some schools, but they finally let him into the School of Architecture. And uh, so he told his coach, who was a, you know, a Secret Service guy, uh, that he, he, wanted, he wanted his dad, who spoke French, to take him during spring break, to take him to Paris, and so he could kind of see the sights and so on. And so this guy, you know, smoking a cigarette, saying, okay, he said, I'll meet you in a week in my office. So Peter's thinking, okay, he either is going to get a visa with his dad to leave or else he's going to get arrested because they realize that he's plotting something. So he, he went a week later up to the, the steps, you know, where this guy had his office. It was a nice bright day, kind of cold. And, and he said, this is the last time I'm going to see sunlight in a while. But actually, he did get the visas. So he and his dad left. They went on the Orient Express over to Paris. And the first thing they did was they went to the closest police station and they asked for political asylum, which they got. Uh, in that same place where they were asking for political asylum, there were people from uh, Franco's Nazi, you know, fascist regime who were also asking for political asylum. So, so France had a very liberal attitude. All right, so... Peter had an uncle in Chicago. You see the connection? I'm in Chicago. Peter had an uncle in Chicago. So they, they um, he and his dad actually were able to immigrate to the United States. And, and uh, Peter started school again in the School of Architecture. And uh, again, he graduated from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And th that's when we met. Uh, we met in uh, 1965. He had just graduated from school. I was still in school. We married in 1967. Our first daughter was born. Uh, she's sitting back there. We had a second daughter in 1970. And we, my husband loved to build things. We bought an old house in Wicker Park. If, if any of you know Chicago, it's an area that became gentrified. Um, but we, we were there when it was not gentrified. <laughs> we were like the first people there. And we started renovating this house. And so the house had a, a basement that needed to get dug out. And we didn't 
couldn't do it ourselves. So we hired a contractor that we had heard about. And it turns out that this man was a Seventh-day Adventist, a man from Yugoslavia. His name was Daniel. And he became Peter's spiritual mentor. Now, Daniel was from uh, the country area. My, my husband grew up in, in Belgrade, the capital. His dad had been very rich. They had kind of, you know, rich ideas. Um, and so Daniel was, was, a, was a peasant from, but they, they clicked, okay? And then, you know, my husband always wanted to, to have his own business. And the fact is, he couldn't work for anybody. He, uh, he'd had some jobs, and I think he was fired from every job because he just he didn't go along with the flow. Anyway, so we started, we tried to start our own business, but there was a downturn in the economy, and my husband had been working for, for a, it's kind of like, it, it was called Yo, but it was for, for people in the technical areas. Um, so he was handing out contracts to contractors to work on federal buildings. And so he said, wow, there's a lot of money here. I'm gonna see, I'm gonna call Daniel and see if we can go into business together. And so they did, they started a construction company and they, they put in bids um, to, to do federal work. And then as it happened, they were doing pretty well in their business. Daniel, the contractor, gave me a copy of The Great Controversy. And I was reading some book on Greek history or something like that. And so I finished that book kind of, and then I started reading The Great Controversy. And I can't tell you the kind of explosion of new and vital information that that, that book did for me. Here was a reasonable explanation for why God allowed evil. A reasonable explanation for why churches behave so miserably. <laughs> and a reasonable look into the future. And I'll tell you, when I first started that, reading that book, I was an agnostic. But by the time I finished reading it, I was convinced that this was the truth. And I was astounded that the author, some EGY person, could put together the ideas in the book to make such a comprehensible and reasonable narrative. Um, she wrote with authority. And after I read that book, somebody told me, it might have been Daniel, that this E.G. White, this Ellen White, had received visions. And I had no problem believing it. So Peter, you know, as, as I was reading, I was telling my husband, look what I read here, look what I read here. And so anyway, he, he, he read the book. And we decided to start attending church and to keep the Sabbath. So we went to the North Shore Seventh-day Adventist Church in Chicago. And, uh, and I'm praying this whole time because my, my husband has a little bit of an edge on him, okay? We got, we got home from church, and he said, I am never going to that church again, never. And I thought, oh, <laughs> here I am believing everything that's in this book. I want to go to church. He said, I'm never going back. And I said, Peter, what's the matter? What happened? He said, oh, they're interested in his money. They kept passing that plate along. Well, in, in Yugoslavia, the church is, is supported by the government. They don't ask for money because they get it from the government, right? Um, 
Anyway, he got over his initial <laughs> uh, encounter with the church, and, and we did start going. Um, and and we, we faithfully went to church, and that was part of my husband's personality, too. He had... He was a little bit dyslexic, okay, not a little bit, he was dyslexic, and so he had to have regiments. He got up every day, I think at four o'clock in the morning, and started reading and studying, and we always went to church, we always went to Sabbath school, right, Joanna? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay, but through this, um, you know, I still had some questions about who exactly Jesus was wasn't totally clear to me. I had questions about how the United States that was founded on principles of liberty and justice would become a persecuting power. And the nature of God, was he truly love or if you pushed him far enough, would he just kind of break out in, into anger? Was the law and love compatible? How does God save us if we're not perfect? Questions are absolutely vital. And I forgot this. Here's a picture of us in our, in our younger days. <laughs> okay. So questions are absolutely vital. You know, how does a child learn? What's the first thing they say when they learn to speak? Why? Why? Right? So I had all these why questions still. And sometimes God, God will answer those things in various ways. I remember, you know, growing up and and believing in evolution. And I'm thinking, you know, how does that, I, how does all that compute? You know, I, I believe that God is the creator, but why did he make animals and people so similar, right? Why did he do that? So that we could get confused about evolution? I just had this question in my mind. And I remember uh, one day I went out to, to the store and I came back to the house and uh, I was really hungry. So I thought, man, I'm going to go get something to eat. And then I remembered our little dog. And I thought, you know, he's probably hungry too. So God answered that question for me. Why are we kind of similarly designed to the animals? Adam and Eve were to have dominion over the garden. And they were to have dominion over the animals. And so he, we're similar to them. We understand, right? Okay. So Peter and I, I'm going to take you back to Chicago. Peter and I were new Adventists, uh, and we knew that we needed to leave the cities for the sake of our girls. Um, the Pope and the Patriarch of the Orthodox Church, I think he was the one in, in, in um, Istanbul, um, are at odds with each other, right? They hate each other. Look at that history. Well, as we were becoming new Adventists, the Pope actually bowed down to the patriarch, signaling that he wanted to bring those churches together. And we thought, boy, this is, this is what we read in the Great Controversy. Uh, so again, we're, we're New Adventists. We knew, know we need to leave the city. We're both city people. We have no idea how to live out in the country. And then our life began to fall apart in Chicago. Peter's mother had come to the United States, and he was, she was living with us in our house, Peter's father had actually gone back to Yugoslavia. He had a, a U.S. pension by this time, and he could live quite well there. And, and he went back. They never had a very good marriage, okay? But she was living with us. 
And she had fits of depression. And she committed suicide in our house. I couldn't stand living. I loved my mother-in-law. I really loved her. I, I think in, in some ways I loved her more than I love my own mother. I just, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so we couldn't stand living in the house. And I, and I thought my heart would break. And by that time, we, we had heard about um, what's called self-supporting work. Uh, those of you who are Seventh-day Adventists, it's a group of people who are not financially tied to the church, but they've banded together to do a work for God. And, and, and so uh, Peter and I put our, our house that we had worked so hard on into the hands of a group running a Seventh-day Adventist vegetarian restaurant in Chicago, and we left for this place called Wildwood. And it's on the Georgia-Tennessee border. And they, it, it was actually a little hospital. They usually try to use naturally, mainly natural remedies to treat chronic diseases. And we spent about 10 years in that family of institutions. We moved from uh, Georgia. We were actually in, in uh, Michigan, um, in Battle Creek, Michigan for a little while. We were at uh, Oak Haven, and then we moved back to Georgia. And this place in Georgia was just outside of, of Chattanooga, Tennessee, because um, it's on the Georgia-Tennessee border. Uh, and after about 10 years, we felt for various reasons it was time to move on, and we kind of determined to do so. Uh, Peter found, uh, even while he was in that institution, he found a, a design job with the Florida Conference for some design at Camp Kalakwa. And uh, so with a little bit of money, <laughs> Uh, we moved off the campus uh, with the hope of completing that job in Camp Kalakwa, and we were given $10,000 unexpectedly from that house in Chicago. It's a long story, which we no longer own. So we put everything into this, into a house that we found in Sequatchie, Tennessee, which is also outside of Chattanooga. And the house was totally ramshackle. I mean, it was, it was so porous that when the wind blew, all the windows rattled. But my husband loved to fix things, right? <laughs> so by the time we finished, we had, the house was 4,000 square feet, three-car garage, and anyway. Um, but what we, so we were in this ramshackle house, okay? Uh, and not only was the house porous, but underneath the house, there was a, a dog that had fleas that was living under the house. So we had fleas in the house. It was just... It was pretty bad. Okay. But I remember one incident from that time that gave me, has given me comfort over the years. I'm going to share it with you. Uh, so we had just kind of moved into this house, and we didn't have, and the mortgage was ridiculous, like $300 a month or something. You know, that was a long time ago. The house wasn't, didn't cost very much money, obviously. It's pretty, pretty bad shape. Um, and we didn't have we didn't have money for the mortgage. <laughs> it's just no way. I didn't have a job yet. We hadn't gotten money yet. And so we're wondering, like, what are we going to do? So my husband, again, who gets up early in the morning, was up early. And for some reason, I got up early that morning, too. And uh, we're talking. We're saying, hey, you know, we need money. So we decided we were going to pray about it. We got down on our knees, and my husband in his uh, way said, God, we need money. 
just about that time, it felt like there was this huge boom. It felt like as if you had put a bucket over your head and went pew, and the lights in the house went off. So I started going into the, where the kitchen was to see if I could get a flashlight or something, you know. And so as I was passing through uh, to get that flashlight, all of a sudden in, in this door where the bedroom was, I said, hey, Peter, the light's on in this room. So I opened the door and flames burst out. <laughs> there was... A Yeah, that's right. One of the girls had been sleeping there yeah, just uh, shortly before then. Um, what happened was uh, uh, lightning had struck the thing right outside of our house. The, like, the electricity had gone through, through, the, through the plug and caught the, the bed on fire. But l luckily there was a, a door, and so we just started shoveling things out. The, the bed was gone, the carpet, just junk that we had. Um, I went down to, we did have insurance on the house, so I went down to the insurance place and he wrote me a check. Somebody like Don wrote me a check uh, for the stuff that we had lost. And also we had to have an electrician come, you know, rewire the house a little bit. Still didn't have enough money, uh, but we were getting closer, <laughs> okay? So I was taking one of the girls to, oh, and we had, we had had a fire at this place when we were in Michigan. It was a fire and our car had burned. And so somebody there on campus had gotten a car from a relative, and, and so that person lovingly gave us their old car. Uh, it, was a, it was an old car, <laughs> okay? So I was driving this old car and uh, taking one of my kids uh, to um, Academy. And I was coming down the road, it was very windy. And as I was coming down, I realized that this truck was coming up with, and it was hauling a, um, a mobile home. And I thought, he's gonna hit me. Sure, I, so I pulled the car over as far as I could. And so he <laughs> hit me right along my car. And he said, lady, he said, I'm so sorry. He said, don't turn me in. He said, don't call the police or anything. Um, which I couldn't do anyway. We were like out in the middle of nowhere. He said, just here's my card. Get me three um, bids. And he said, I'll send you a check. And I got home and I told my husband what happened to this old car that we had. And he said, you did what? You just let that person go. You didn't call the police. Anyway, he sent us a check. So we had enough money. Um, and over the years, you know, God doesn't always answer prayers. And sometimes I take exception with some of the children's stories where God kind of always comes through. He doesn't always come through in the way that we want him to come through. But whatever he does is for our good. But this particular thing that happened to us, I look back on it and I say, I know God is able to do whatever he wants. Yeah. Okay, so uh, while we were there in Sequatchie, you know, we, we worked on the house. And, and while we were there, it was actually good for us. Uh, Peter, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the lodge manufacturing the cast iron skillets. He was, they, they have a headquarters, they have their business not far from where we were. So he, he, he 
Peter designed their headquarters. He designed the Hickman Science Building at Southern Adventist University and the residence of Ellsworth McKee. Okay. So by this time, you know, our, our daughters were no longer living with us, and we had had a few foster children. But when I was 50 and my husband was 60, I listened to a radio program on adoption, uh, and they referenced a site called www.precious.org. I thought, well, I'm going to get on that site. So I got on there, and there's like 150, 200 kids that have no families. And I said, Peter, we got that big house. Let's go ahead and, and adopt them. He, and he agreed. So we adopted two brothers from Bulgaria. Do I have a picture of them? No, I don't. Let me see what the next picture is. Oh, no. Okay, no, that was the last picture. Okay. Um, so we, we adopted these two brothers from Bulgaria. They were Rome. They're gypsy. And they were such fun. They're musical and just, you know, really easy to get along with. And so we decided, uh, you know, we had all the paperwork done. That's the hardest part is to do all the paperwork and the home studies. And it's good for a certain amount of time. And so I said, you know, Peter, we've got this big house. <laughs> but let's adopt again. And so we adopted uh, two boys, this time from Russia. So we had these kids out in the country, and we were on a, you know, a couple of acres. So they ran around. And, and <sighs> so they'd been with us for a little bit of time, a couple of years. And as the children grew and settled, they, they settled in, I had a personal run-in with the legal system. And I realized that without legal representation, a person was at a huge disadvantage. And so I decided to go back to school. My husband actually sent me back to school. Uh, so after my first year of law school, we were in Tennessee, we all moved to the Seattle area where my mother and two sisters lived. And one of our daughters moved pretty closely after that. And then Joanna moved uh, far after that. So I, I passed the bar in 2007. We lived and worked in Auburn, where we met Jay and his family. Uh, so that was from 2004 to 2020. My husband had a very serious hemorrhagic stroke in 2020, and he passed away in February 2021. You all know I moved back here. Uh, and you've heard about all my moves and all the major events in my life, but in parallel to those moves, <laughs> physical moves, there were spiritual ones. And I'm a person who has a lot of doubts. I need evidence. And when I come to experience those doubts, um, I go back over all the evidence that God has given me. And so I remember reading the Bible for the first time, and I read Psalm 22, which is a depiction of Jesus on the cross. And I was astounded when I read that. I mean, this was written thousands of years before he came on earth. And then I read Deuteronomy 28:64, where, where God is talking to the Israelites and saying, you know, if you follow me, there's a blessing. If you don't follow me, there's a curse. And I know you're not going to follow me. And I'm going to scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. And I think, whoa, that has really happened. Anywhere you go, you're going to find a Jewish synagogue. Um, in fact, a friend of ours who is Jewish uh, took a trip around the world. He said, everywhere I went, um, there were Jewish synagogues. I remember the time prophecy of Daniel pinpointing the time of his sacri sacrifice. 
the sanctuary service, which was given to the Israelites as they were leaving uh, the, the e Egypt, where the plan of salvation is depicted in type, in symbols, the Bible had a clear understanding of the nature of man, which was big to me because, you know, when you're growing up, you say, you know, why are people so nasty? What's going on? Is it society that corrupts them? Um, but the Bible says, you know, man, his nature is defective. And I thought when I'm reading the Bible, that is correct. <laughs> Man's nature is defective. And then uh, the Bible's outline of the, of the controversy between God's principle and, and Satan's, which we, we covered a little bit of that in our Sabbath school lesson today. Um, so, again, my spiritual journey in parallel with the with the, with the physical one. I've come to understand that God made us physical, mental, and spiritual, and they're all interrelated. You know, if you're not feeling well, your spiritual life is going to suffer. If you're not, you can't think as clearly. Everything's interrelated, and God is interested in all aspects of our life. The Old Testament has physical laws to help people understand that God put laws in our bodies and so that we can work in, in harmony with those laws. He created civil laws for people that were in a state of sin. And he has spiritual laws, you know, the Ten Commandments and the other things that, that he's revealed to us. Um, and, and in these last days, God has given us special testimony through Ellen White. What a wealth God has given us. And God wants us to grow intellectually. I'm always impressed by the story of um, the walk from uh, Emmaus. You know, when Jesus was resurrected, there were two of his disciples who were walking back home from Jerusalem where they had suffered this terrible disappointment. And they had heard about maybe you know, they couldn't find the body of Jesus. Like, what's going on? So they're questioning and wondering. They're walking back to Emmaus when Jesus actually personally comes and walks with them and he talks with them. And if Jesus had told them, here I am, I'm alive, that's it. <laughs> that would have been enough for them. But instead, he brought them back to the Old Testament and he walked them through how God had told the children of Israel about his coming, about all the things that were in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And, uh, and so that points to me that God wants us uh, to really use our intellect because he did that for, for his early church. He pointed them back to the Old Testament. So again, I'm coming to these why questions. And, and why questions are hugely important. God can, of course, answer us directly, like he did with my doggy situation. Um, but others have had the same questions. During the sermon time, uh, there is not an opportunity to challenge the speaker or to even ask questions. But Sabbath school is designed by God for just such an exercise. We can learn from each other. We can ask our why questions, okay? But you say or somebody says, there are hypocrites in the church. 
yeah, okay, so God has a church, but there are hypocrites in the church. Yes, Judas was in the first church. You may be sitting next to Judas, right? But do you want Judas to keep you from reaching Jesus? Oh, how foolish. Um, and maybe, maybe Judas doesn't really want to be Judas. You know, I, I, I read the story of Judas in, in the Desire of Ages, and I think, you know, I got a lot in common with that man. <laughs> I don't want to be like that. So I'm going to invite you to Sabbath school where you can challenge the teachers and, and, and so on. But before we close, I want you to do a thought exercise with me. You can close your eyes if you want, but see in front of you a veil. It's a transparent veil, and it has an opening. And inside the veil, you can see Jesus. He's surrounded by crippled, diseased, blind people, and Jesus is healing them. And there's a sign on the top of the veil. It says, this is the clinic of Jesus of Nazareth the most humble being in the universe, but he's Lord of Lords, King of Kings, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. Everyone welcome. And I look at myself, I'm bleeding and wounded. I live among a people who lie, steal, cheat, who have hurt me. But I, and I'm wounded, and I realize I need healing. Then I realize I have participated in this bloodletting, and that's why I need healing. Then I see another sign. It says, caution. All who enter here give up their autonomy, their ability to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. All who enter here become mere slaves of the Almighty. All who enter here must die to their own self-interest and be subservient to God forever. All who enter here become subject to God's law. Love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself. Caution, do not enter. Signed, Judas, also known as Satan, your friend. I pause. Do I want Jesus to heal me of my disease? Do I want to become part of his kingdom and live according to his law? I see Jesus lift up his hands. They're scarred. I look more closely. His handsome forehead is pitted with scars. I realize he made a very expensive, totally voluntary trip down from the throne of the universe to heal the people in front of him. His kingdom is safe and his people are happy. I tear through the veil and join the group of people being healed. And I want to invite you, if you want to come to the feet of Jesus with me, join me in my closing prayer, would you? Those who, who want to come. Our loving Father, Lord, we thank you that you have made a way of escape for us. You have answered our why questions, or you can answer them if we're just open enough to answer them, to, quest to, to question you. Lord, we just thank you for your condescension. We thank you that the most humble being in the universe is God of all, and we want to be with you forever. We thank you for making that possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
please stand as we sing this consecratory hymn and think about all the beautiful things that we've heard today. Nearer, still nearer, close to Lord, as we close this service today, we ask for you to come into our hearts. Help us to use the words that we heard today from Bronca to put them in our own lives and to think about how you want to use us. Thank you for drawing us nearer to thee today, Lord. In Jesus' loving name, amen. <laughs>